hey, this is why you don't let the worship pastor make announcements. Uh, but I'm Josh, and uh, I'm the student pastor and groups pastor here at Genesis. And uh, yeah, really glad that you're here today to celebrate with us. We're in week number two of The Gift, our Christmas series. Uh, and obviously the gift is, of course, Jesus Christ. But we're talking about one aspect of the gift, one aspect of what Jesus Christ brings to us in the form of this little baby who becomes a man who revolutionizes not just the world around him, but all history and everyone who comes into contact with him. And so here in week two, we're talking about the gift and we're going to be looking at this aspect of forgiveness that we don't often talk about, but to kind of review from last week, maybe you weren't here or you've just slept since then, Paul challenged us to be forgiving those who have wronged us, to be looking at, looking and seeking out those in our lives that have caused us pain. And last week he used the, uh, the physical kind of illustration of a dining room table. And I love that picture of that dining room table. It even had some cards with some words on it that represented maybe some of the pain and heartache that you may experience when you sit around that dining room table. Maybe you have already for a Christmas celebration you're about to. Words like divorce. Words like old memories or harsh words or, or some sort of passive-aggressive fight that just seems to be ongoing in your family's life. And you know that as soon as you sit down to that table, the battle lines will be drawn and there'll be kind of this awkward standoff of silence and, and sniping remarks that you're going to have to sit through ex- or experience. And for many of us, there's this dread that we have moving into this, uh, this Christmas season because we know we're going to face that. We're going to face things with our family of, of individuals who have wronged us in the past. And one of the things that kind of came from last week was this idea, this rhythm of, of prayer, of forgiveness, and of blessing. To pray, to forgive, to bless. That we are supposed to enter into these relationships that we have that are broken. No one's denying the fact that you have been wronged. But entering into these relationships where we can simply say that I am going to be praying for you. I am going to forgive you. And I'm not just going to stop there, but I'm going to look to take that to bless you and to bless others. It's really kind of a revolutionary idea that I believe would really improve our relationships dramatically. Our family relationships, our working relationships, things would change incredibly if we followed into this. But for some of you, you're not just the victim, you're the offender. For some of you, you have been wronged by someone else, but for all of us, I would contend, we have wronged someone. That there's been something we've done, something we've said, something we haven't done or said that has caused pain. And we may not even be aware of it. And so this morning, today, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to look at this idea of initiating forgiveness. This is foreign to us. This is something that we don't talk about very often. This isn't something that we embrace openly in our lives, and our relationships. But we're going to be looking at a biblical model where Jesus is commanding us to seek out forgiveness. That there has to be a priority. So last week we talked about them. Today we're going to be talking about us. But before we do that, I want to take a little survey. I want to take a little survey, a little kind of crowd participation here. Uh, And this this is going to kind of uh, help us understand where we're coming from. Let's see who in this room has experienced this. How many of you have something that you let somebody else borrow? 
Okay, you let somebody else borrow a tool, a book, a movie. You let someone else borrow something. And this low-down, no-good, pathetic, mischievous person is yet to return it to you. Raise your hand if you have loaned something out and it has not been returned back to you. Okay? You know, most of the room, everybody's kind of nodding their heads, a lot of hands being raised there. You've, you've given something away, and these people are kind of holding on to it. Now, uh, the majority of, majority of the time when this happens, you know, you can name the person and what they borrowed. You can name what they borrowed. You can name where it's supposed to go on your shelf or in your garage or in your kitchen. You know exactly there's a hole missing because this person hasn't returned it to you, right? Okay, flip side. How many of you have borrowed something from someone else, from the goodness of their heart, they have lent you something in your time of need, and you have yet to return it? Fewer hands are going up, but these few are the honest few. The rest of you are liars. (laughs) But here's the thing that that illustrates. We don't really take notice of the wrongs that we have committed. They're in a very simple, very very kind of elementary way of looking at it. We miss what we have done wrong to others. It's not even on our radar. When we would just sit and stew and be totally frustrated with someone who has borrowed something and hasn't returned it to us. This idea that, that they have somehow kind of, they have, they have wronged us. It's, it's, uh, these, these people have, have messed us over and they've hurt us. And it makes sense that, that the pain inflicted on us would hurt more than the pain we inflict on other people. But here's the problem. Pain is still going back and forth. We're going to look at a, a passage that's going to kind of serve as a, a kind of a core uh, reading today uh, as, we, as we look at this issue of forgiveness. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 5. It's the first book of the New Testament. Here in a moment, it'll be on the screen once we get there. But we need to kind of explain what's going on here in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 23, you see the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is some of the most revolutionary, some of the most incredible teaching of Jesus. Non-Christians look at the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere and find incredible respect find incredible resonance, can can look at that and say, that is some good stuff. That is something, if we applied it to our lives, our society would look markedly different. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't dealing with things that are very minor. He's dealing with things that are incredibly major. He's even taking things that were accepted, things that were taught in, in the synagogues, taught by the rabbis, and he's flipping them on his head. Jesus is challenging the status quo and teaching things that are revolutionary to society. He talks about murder. He talks about the wrongness of murder. That's an easy one, but he takes it another step by saying, if you hate, if you have hatred in your heart, if you speak a a condemning word to someone, that is the equivalent of murder in the eyes of God. Later, he talks about adultery. He talks about divorce. And he talks about lust, that lust, that looking at a woman or looking at a man and having inappropriate sexual thoughts about this person who isn't your spouse is equivalent to adultery. He talks about integrity. He talks about loving your enemies. He talks about some of the things that are incredibly revolutionary. And in the middle of all of this, in the middle of this incredible teaching, he talks about reconciliation with other people. He talks about forgiveness. Pick it up there in uh, verse 23 of chapter 5. It'll be on screens uh, for you to follow. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says this, Supper is sacrifice, and you remember has some sacrifice their altar, oh, exile, then come, your God, or at least this, are on the way to court with your adversary. Settle your differences quickly. So Jesus paints this picture of someone being religiously observant, going and making a sacrifice, something that was so incredibly important to the identity of a Jew. They're not going to just any temple, but the temple, making great, possibly making great sacrifices of time and money to travel to this place, giving their sacrifice, the thing that will make them right with God, in the middle of it. If you realize you have messed someone over, you're to leave in the middle of it and go and make it right. This goes against common sense. This goes against religious teaching. This goes against our human nature. But this is what Jesus is saying in the midst of this incredible teaching is the priority of seeking forgiveness. In other words, you have to seek forgiveness. You have to deal with this very issue. If you're taking notes, that's the first kind of point we want to communicate here is to seek forgiveness. That so often we kind of delay, we, we allow things to build, and we just kind of hope they will resolve themselves. We go to another family gathering. We go back to our dorm room and have another awkward silence with our roommate. We are in a relationship where both parties know this isn't going anywhere. We sit down at work next to someone in a cubicle that, that we have had this disagreement and things have just gone unresolved and we just sit there and they're not just going to work themselves out because we have to seek forgiveness. Here, here's a kind of a, a real life example, something I you know, ashamedly do. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you're out at a mall or some public place. And you're walking around and, and you're in a rush. Maybe you're in a hurry. Maybe you're shopping for Christmas presents. And across the room, you see someone that you know. It's an acquaintance. It's someone you've known from your past. It's someone that you work with. It's not someone that you're excited to see. It's not someone that you're excited to sit down and have a long conversation with. So you see them, and you kind of look the other way, and all of a sudden you're very interested in what's over here. Is that person's over there? And you got your head down. You get your phone out. You're on. You're, you're busy. You know. You're. You don't have time to talk to this person. Maybe there's someone with you and you have this elaborate scheme where, where you give, okay, you go to the checkout, I'll, I'll go over there, I'll, I'll be at the car, I'll get you at the curb and we'll get out of here. And we do these things to avoid these conversations because we, we don't want to interact with this person. This, you know, this is going to be awkward, it's going to take time. They're going to bring up that thing that happened at work, that happened at the last time we met and talked, and I don't want to apologize for it, I don't want to get in the whole thing. i got to get home, i got stuff to do. But here's the flip side. Here's, here's the thing that, that many of us will do that we don't realize. That what we need to understand is that they may have already seen you as well. They may have already seen you in the situation and they're doing the exact same thing to you that you're doing to them. They're trying to act busy. They're trying to get out of the store as quickly as possible because they don't want to talk to you either. They're avoiding you. It's interesting how sometimes we will avoid people. Or in, the, or in families, we'll avoid obviously important issues. We'll avoid the thing that everyone's thinking about. Especially at holiday times, we're going to ignore the relational pain. We're going to ignore the, the things that have divided. We sense it there. We can, we can almost, it's, it's palpable. We can almost taste it. But no one's going to say anything about it. For instance, there may be a family. It's a, a very serious problem. There may be someone who has an eating disorder or a substance abuse issue. There may be a, an addiction or some sort of wrong that has happened in the past. And, and alcoholism really plays this out. It's kind of this family secret that 
kind of this thing that could just be avoided. And, and so here's a problem. We don't talk about them. We don't talk about what they're doing. We cover it up. We enable them to continue it. Does anyone stop and talk about it? No, we just turn and go down the another aisle. We just turn and pass the potatoes. We just change the subject and we talk about football. We just change the subject and talk about our kids. We just change the subject and do whatever we have to do to avoid the problem. You know, this is not exclusive to, to non-Christian families. This, is a, this happens in Christian families all the time. You know, there'd be times where I'm sitting down with a family, I'm sitting with a student, and they're sharing these things of pain, of brokenness, and it is just, it doesn't fit what I see. It doesn't fit what I see as I see this family coming together on a Sunday morning to worship. It doesn't fit this picture that they have created for themselves. That there is brokenness in all of our lives. And sometimes it's just underneath the surface. And sometimes that family is working very, very hard to hide beneath this, this facade, this, this fake thing they've put in front of us. And Christmas time, we'll go in. And many of us have learned to play this game. Many of us have learned to be polite, to just talk about the surface things, to never ask the deep questions, to never be willing to go there, even though it might be awkward and painful. I know you don't really like me. I know you don't, you know you got these problems. I know there's, there's this, this issue in our past, but we're going to be polite. And for the sake of peace, for the sake of harmony, we don't want to bring it up. But what's the main problem? The main problem is that God doesn't want us to live like this, that God doesn't want us to to stay in this reality. And the main problem is is that we don't even realize that we are the ones that are causing offense. You know, when we did the hand-raising, did you lend a tool out that hadn't been returned? There's kind of this this principle, this kind of psychological principle that we've talked about before, I think, from this very stage, but where we judge people based on their actions. Well, if you didn't return your tool to me, you didn't return that book, well, you must be a jerk, you know? We just immediately go there. But if we've got a book sitting on my on our desk, on my desk, I will slip there because I have a book sitting on my desk that I've been sitting there for a few months that belongs to someone else I need to return. But if we have that book, we keep telling ourselves, we keep rationalizing, well, I intend to return it. I intend to read the book. I intend to, to, to make this, to give this back. So this person can't be mad at me. They let me borrow it. In the same way, on a more serious level, maybe it was a comment. You made a comment that was out of line, and you, in your mind, says, well, I didn't intend it to be out of line. I intended it to be funny. I intended it to kind of break the ice. I intended just to kind of get something out there. I wasn't trying to be a jerk, but that's how it's perceived. And so we have this issue. We have this issue here in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is making a priority, telling us that, in fact, if we have done something wrong, we can't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We can't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt because we have to go and we have to fix it right now. Now, some of you on the inside, maybe you're squirming a little bit here because you know there are things that you, go, you need to go and apologize for. You know deep down you have wronged someone. You know that in a few days or in a few weeks, you're going to sit around a table or sit in a living room with somebody and you're going to have that tension right there and you're going to need to apologize. And you're sitting there and you know this needs to happen. You know, you're like me. As I started to work on this sermon, I had to go and make some apologies before I could stand before you and preach it. But here's the problem. Many of us have caused hurt and we don't know about it. We haven't even realized it. There are people in your life and in my life 
that heard last week's sermon, they heard last week's sermon and they're wrestling with the idea of forgiving you and forgiving me. They're trying to forgive us and we don't even realize that we have hurt them. Sit with this. That we have caused offense. You're going to walk into that Christmas party and there will be people in the room you have hurt and you don't even know it. So what do you do? You ask them. You seek forgiveness by asking for it. You seek forgiveness by asking. Husbands, you need to ask your wives how you have hurt them. Parents, you need to ask your kids, your roommates, your friends, your in-laws, your co-workers. As I was preparing this message, I had to sit down with Heidi. I had to ask my wife that question. Knowing that I was going to be challenging you to ask this question, I had to do it myself. It was a vulnerable thing to do, and it stung when she had an answer. But it was better than the alternative. It was better than me just going in ignorance and pretending everything is okay while she has been hurt by something I did. I had to sit down and say, Heidi, how have I hurt you? That is better than the alternative. Allowing that bitterness to form and becoming a wedge. It gave me the chance to make it better, to change something before it got out of hand. We had a chance to save a part of our relationship before it was too late. Yeah, it was hard. It was awkward. There's work that needs to be done from this point forward, but it was worth it. You know, so so often, Heidi and I got to see this play out with college students. Heidi and I were both RAs, and Heidi was an RD, so she's in charge of an entire building. Heidi was in charge of a a building of about 200 19-year-old women. So you can imagine there was some drama and some issues that emerged from time to time. And, And we had a very small apartment, and so... Someone would come down and want to talk to Heidi about an issue, and I, I couldn't go anywhere and not hear what was going on, right? And so it would often be they would come in the living room, I'd be in the office, and I'd be like stuck. And this little thin door, I can hear every word. And in my experience working with college students, and in Heidi's experience working with college students, these roommate conflicts that would emerge kind of followed a very similar pattern. Someone would come upset about something. They were upset about, about something that had happened, and in their mind, it was over. It was time to move out. It was time to kick them out. They, most of the time, even had the alternative plan laid out. Oh, I can move over here with this person, and it's going to be fine. Just sign this. And Heidi, in, in her brilliance as a leader, would ask one question first. And that one question usually stopped everything. She would look at this woman, and she would say, Have you talked to your roommate about this? Well, no, I can't talk to her. But have you talked to your roommate about this? No, that would be too awkward. I just, I, I can't do that. You need to go talk to your roommate about this. And I'll go with you to do that. You know, time and time again... The, the, the fracturing of our relationships, one party isn't even aware of it. One party isn't even aware there's an issue. And we resist that mediation, we resist that conversation because we think it's going to go horrible, because we think it's, it's going to be very awkward. It's easier for us to run away from it. You know, I, 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 we have a, Heidi and I have an incredible marriage. She's my best friend. But, but obviously, like all married couples, we have issues. And, and usually these issues are minor things that become big things, right? Well, having a child, we got a five-month-old at home, we realize that our margin of error has shrunk considerably. 
It's the lack of sleep. It's the new schedule. It's all the things that come with raising an infant. We now realize that we can't just let things sit there. We've got to deal with them now because things will start to blow up. And so maybe where you are in your relationships, you need to not take for granted Don't take for granted this idea that it'll work itself out, that we'll talk about it later. So that's the first thing we have to do. We have to seek forgiveness. We can't let or expect someone else just to deal with it because it isn't going to fix itself. The second thing is that we have to make reconciliation a priority. In your notes, if you're following along, we have to make it right now. It can't wait. We have to make it right now. This is too important. When Jesus is teaching on this, he uses the example of someone offering something at the temple. He's traveled, he's gone, this is a big deal, and he leaves there in the middle of it, incomplete. The act of connecting with God in worship is incomplete. He goes and makes something right. In their understanding of worship, this would be they are now separated, they are distant from God. That not finishing that sacrifice would mean that there's now a divide between them and God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, there's a divide when there's not reconciliation between you and those around you. That you have to seek this out. So in Jesus' scenario, you have to leave without completing it. He says, leave your offering and go. Settle your differences quickly. You hear the urgency. You hear the urgency not to put this off, to not delay, to act. If you have hurt someone, you need to go and make it right. Make it right right now. We know, he knows that we're going to put this off. And so maybe in your notes right now, you need to write down the name of the person that you need to have a conversation with. Because as you leave this door, excuses will come. It will slip your mind. It will not become a a priority. And we'll justify inaction with our good intentions. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 2 through 4, illustrates this. It says, If you have trapped yourself by, by your agreement and are caught by what you said, follow my advice and save yourself. For you have placed yourself at your friend's mercy. Now swallow your pride. Go and beg to have your name erased. Don't put it off. Do it now. Another translation, it talks about don't let sleep come to your eyes. It talks about how this has to be dealt with now. They cannot, it can't wait because you can't rest until you do. Now this may surprise some of you and it won't surprise any of you who know me. I have a history of getting myself in trouble with my mouth. I know it's a shocker. I can be loud. I can be impulsive. I yell things that I think are funny up here, but when they come out, something's lost in the translation. Uh, There's certain family members uh, who have uh, very colorful ways of stating that my mouth tends to override better judgment. You can fill in the blanks on that, but, but it's a great way to illustrate how sometimes what we say can cause us and cause others a lot of problems and a lot of pain. And so when this happens, when I see these words coming out and I can't do anything to get them back, I have this moment where I have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. Am I going to deal with this now? Am I going to apologize now? Or or am I just going to hope it all works out? I'm going to hope they didn't hear that. I'm going to hope that, that things were fine. I was doing a wedding rehearsal recently. And wedding rehearsals are, can be high stress. There's, you know, people have opinions and everyone wants, wants to go eat dinner. And like, it's, it's, you know, as the pastor at a wedding reception, like my job is to get everybody on the same page as clearly and as quickly as possible and let's go eat, right? Like that's, that's the goal. And so I'm up there and, and I'm kind of, you know, kind of running the show, telling people where to stand, all this stuff. And I found myself 
kind of getting short with, with, with one of the wedding party who's asking a very legitimate question. And so I get kind of short with that person, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Josh, uh, I have no idea if she knows Jesus. You are a pastor, and you are a jerk in her eyes. You need to fix this, right? And so we're doing the thing where they practice walking out. And so they're practice walking out. She's a couple down the, down the row. I step over, and I say, hey, I'm sorry, that came out wrong. I I really did not mean that. I I apologize. Now, she said it was no big deal. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But you have to deal with it now. You have to take that as as a priority. You can't let this just sit and expect or hope that things didn't didn't hit the way you uh, were concerned that they did. But there has to be urgency. And urgency is not something that we uh, manufacture or do naturally. You know, I think about any time there's a big storm coming or the first big snow. You, you would think that everyone's making French toast with all the, the milk and the bread and the eggs that they buy at the store, right? Like it's just, it's just French toast all the time, you know? I don't know. Um, but, but Steve, our campus pastor at uh, Carmel, was talking about this. He was, we were in our teaching team meeting. We were talking about this message. And he knew a guy who was a manager at a Kroger. And that, that, that kind of came up, that milk and bread and all that run out, run out first. He said, no, 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 no. It's not milk and bread that run out. It's potato chips and beer, <laughs> which, I, which I feel like, you know, like nutritionally, that's going to get you a long way. Like, you know, now, you're, now you're sitting on the couch like just, ugh, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, but when a storm is coming, we see this urgency. Now, I remember if you were like me, you know, you're watching the Hurricane Sandy stuff come in. You know, it's this like thing where I can't stop watching it and it's like horrible and people are going to lose their homes, but I can't stop watching it. And they always got the journalists out there who are really at the pinnacle of their career, standing in knee-deep water, talking about how it's raining and flooding and blowing or whatever, right? We got, these, we got millions of dollars of radar equipment, and, and we need to send somebody out there to just, just check. And so there's a couple things with that. First off, if I live there and I look out my window and I'm sandbagging and I'm trying to save stuff, and I see someone doing a remote from, from my front yard, I'm going to be a little frustrated about it. But the second thing is, like, this person is at their pinnacle career-wise, right? Like, they're on national news. They have to be thinking to themselves, what am I doing with my life? Like, here I am, like, tell me, yeah, it's, it's raining. I don't know. So, so we see this happen, and, and the, the storm had kind of come in, and some of the streets were flooded. And I don't know what I would do if I was in their situation. Would I stay with my home? Would I evacuate? I don't know. I, there's, there's pros and cons both ways. But they always interview the people who stay. And they don't interview the people who are stay, who are like thinking ahead and like sandbagging and working at stuff. They interview the people like in the canoe, right? Just out like tooling around, right? And so they interview canoe guy and like they're talking to him. Well, why are you staying in all this? And it's like some macho answer like, okay. And out of this knee deep water comes a guy in full scuba gear. Okay, he comes up, he takes his regulator out of his mouth and like, like the newscast woman is like shocked and, and they, so they start to interview scuba guy. And so scuba guy is like, yeah, just having fun, just checking things out. Like, it's like three feet of water, and he's like just floating around in his scuba gear. And so you interview scuba guy or whatever, and he, he talks about why he's staying. Like a week later, they go back. And if you know about the storm, it, it, you know, there was flooding, and there was storm surge, and then, then there was a lot more flooding and a lot more storm surge. And they found scuba guy. And scuba guy now was homeless. His home had just been destroyed. They were going to have to tear it, tear it down. It had been knocked off its foundation. It was a total loss. And, and, and they asked him, they said, they said, would you have gotten out? And he goes, I don't know if I would have gotten out. I mean, 
I, it was my home. I couldn't leave it. And he said, but I wish I wouldn't have been messing around those first few days before. When it was just starting, I, I, wish, I, would have, I wish I would have taken it seriously. I just thought I had more time. I thought I had more time and could just enjoy this. It was kind of fun. And he lacked that urgency. He lacked the urgency to make it right and to make it right now. He lacked the urgency to get out there and, and, and address the issue. Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he can't be any clearer about the importance of this. That if you have wronged someone, you have to make it right and you have to make it right now. Now, to give you some background to kind of help you understand the Sermon on the Mount found here in Matthew, Jesus is doing something pretty radical. You know, he's taking things that were accepted teaching and he's saying kind of the opposite. He's flipping things on its head. That Jesus is teaching things that were not accepted conventional wisdom. There's not the status quo. Jesus is coming in and messing with, messing with things that people had accepted for years. And so Jesus is coming in here and he has this moment that kind of said, like, this isn't just a minor tangent. This isn't just some sort of like, thought that's nice. No, this is very, very important. And this is core to who I am. Back in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, this is what Jesus says before he says everything about uh, there on the Sermon on the Night. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. So here's Jesus' mission. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Until its purpose is achieved. The law, the Old Testament, that first three quarters of the Bible that talks about ways to sacrifice animals, the ways to have a healthy community life, the ways in which you're supposed to... um, just, just, you know, who is who and the numbers of people and all these different things. The Ten Commandments, the, you know, King David, all of that. All of the Old Testament is leading up to this moment of Jesus. That this stuff in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is serving as a foundation for the gospel. It's serving as a foundation for Jesus. It's the basis of the idea. So what we're reading here about reconciliation and forgiveness is central It's central to the major fulfillment of understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I got an analogy for you. It's kind of cheesy, but what do you expect, right? Uh, It's a bit of a stretch, but I want to show you something. Here on the screen is a picture of an Apple Newton, okay? This is in 1993. This was Apple's uh, kind of PDA device, okay? It's It's about eight inches in size, eight inches tall, and you had your, your calendar on there, your contacts, you could take little notes, all that kind of stuff. The, the PDAs, the Palm Pilots, they would win out the market, and this would be a device that, that pretty much failed. These, it's even, you, know, you can't even get many of these, they didn't produce them very long. But the Apple Newton is kind of Apple's first crack at the tablet. This is the, the, pre, the predecessor to the iPad. And if you look at it, you can kind of see how they they were getting there, but they just didn't have the technology. They are getting there, but they just didn't quite have all the kinks worked out. They weren't quite able to get to that point. Now, I'm not saying the iPad's like perfect and you all should buy me one for Christmas or whatever, but if you want to, that's fine. Uh, but, uh, but what I am saying is, is that it might help us understand what Jesus is saying here. He says, I'm not here to throw out the old. I'm here to improve it. I'm here to make it make sense. I'm here to, to fulfill it in everything and everything that you had hoped for. 
Okay, take the take the picture down. That's just cheesy, I know, but maybe it, maybe it helps you kind of understand what's going on there. That Jesus is taking this basic idea and building from it into something that's perfect. And so he talks about murder. He talks about adultery, divorce, revenge, loving your enemies, integrity, prayer, money, and generosity. In the middle of this, he speaks to reconciling with others. He speaks to forgiveness and seeking forgiveness out, not just waiting for someone to, to offer you forgiveness. This is the fulfillment. This is the good news. This Jesus is the complete embodiment of the gospel. The gospel, and central to the gospel, one of the central ideas of the gospel is reconciliation, is forgiving others. You know, we keep coming back to Isaiah chapter 9 throughout the series. And in verse 2, I love this, and it's what was voiced over in the video. And it's so appropriate today in light of this week's events that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Leave that up there for a second if you would. But read that from someone who's experienced tragedy. Read that from someone who is lost, who doesn't know what to do next. Read that from someone who's, who, who is not able to provide Christmas for their kids. Read that from somebody who's, who's, who's living in a situation of abuse, of torment, of anxiety. But also read that from the perspective of maybe I'm the one causing the darkness. Or not causing, at least participating in and adding on. And this great light is Jesus. This great light is the, is the gospel. It's this incredible gift at Christmas. We need a light in the world. And Jesus is this great light. He points us to a better way, a way that a loving God intends for us to be good and to be for our good. The way of Jesus is better than our way. And this is the gift of Christmas. See, we see we're walking in darkness all the time. We see it in a movie theater in Colorado, a campus in Blacksburg, a high, a high school in, in Columbine. We even saw it in an elementary school in Connecticut. But light comes in, and Jesus puts things together through reconciliation. That Jesus is this light that speaks to this darkness. That Jesus is the one that, to make this right. And you and I have an opportunity to participate in this reconciliation. You and I have the chance to be a part of this. That in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus doesn't say that, that reconciliation is a distraction from worship or something you do after worship. No, he says it is worship. If you want to connect with me, if you want to worship me with your life, then seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. So maybe even right now, God is bringing to your mind some offense you have made. There's a name, there's a situation. You need to hold on to this. You need to write it down. There are those of us, we need to pray a very simple prayer. That, God, would you give me the chance to go and talk to that person? To talk to that person that I love that I have wronged? Would you give me a chance to seek forgiveness? God, will you give me that chance? You pray for that, and you wait, and you watch. And God may just deliver, deliver very, very quickly the chance to make something right. Help remove any of these excuses, this temptation to wait. Now, with all that being said, let me give a little side note about some of the practicalities of this. It's very important for you to hear. If you've got something against somebody and they don't know it, okay, you need to take that to God and keep your mouth shut. 
If you've been judging them for a long time, you think he or she is pretentious and as arrogant and annoying, the last thing you need to do at Christmas dinner is walk up to them and say, you know what, for years I couldn't stand you. But God has done a work in my life and I love you. Would you forgive me? Don't do that. Don't do that, obviously. You know, maybe, maybe you, uh, you've been sitting out here and you've been able to hear me preach several times and, and you know I'm, I'm leaving to go plant the church uh, here in a few months. And, and when I first got here, you thought it was some joker, some clown that couldn't get two words together, which could be true. And maybe you want to come to me before I go and say, you know what, Josh, I had no faith in you as a leader, as a pastor, as a preacher when you first came here. But man, you've really kind of, kind of got, got, got it. You're getting, you're getting there. Don't do that because I'll cry and it's embarrassing. Don't do criticism. Don't have that spiritual gift of criticism where you seek that out if people don't even realize what's going on. If they don't realize what's going on, that need, you need to do some work between you and God, but you need to kind of let this sit with, between that person. You, know, you need to ask them, have I hurt you? And if they, if they don't have an answer, then, then don't, what's the line? Don't, don't create a wound to put medicine on it. You know? don't, don't cause a hurt so you can fix it. All right? don't, don't, don't cause more damage. Take that to God. That's between you and God. But if you've wounded someone else, then let God's Spirit grab you. Seek forgiveness by stopping everything and acknowledge, I've hurt them. Make it a priority, then drop everything to make it right. Don't wait. What are we going to do when we are going to free ourselves? Free ourselves of this torment and of this guilt and of healthy relationships. If you think back to Proverbs chapter 6, it says if you've been trapped, you know, if you're trapped, you've got to free yourself. You free yourself by, by humbling yourself and by dealing with it now. You go and get it done now. You don't, you don't, you don't take any, any time. You plead with your neighbor because you have to be freed of this because nothing else matters like relationships. Nothing else matters in our world than those that we care about and those that are around us. All the, the junk of Christmas. As much as I love them, the junk of presents. As much as I love the get-togethers, the junk of getting together and worrying about the food. All of that doesn't matter. It pales in comparison to the relationships that we have. And we can't just buy away the hurt or create this perfect Christmas experience that's going to take care of the problem. So how are we going to do this? Two, a couple of biblical thoughts. If you're taking notes, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to do this face-to-face. We're not going to send an email. We're not going to send a text. We're not going to have someone else go on our behalf. We're going to do it face-to-face. If it's possible, that's what we're going to do. You know, I, I think about Paul and Peter, and the Bible says in Galatians chapter 2 that when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says that he opposed him face-to-face because he was clearly in the wrong. He confronted him. Do it face-to-face. Now, there's two things that when that happens you'll want to say. And I want you to have these things kind of at the, at the center of your mind as you think about it. That you, as you do this, there's going to be two temptations that you have that if you're genuinely sorry, you shouldn't fake it. Don't try to work something up. If you're genuinely sorry, say this to them. Say, I'm sorry I have hurt you. Period. Don't add anything else. Don't make excuses. No qualifiers. No modifiers. No, but you did this to me. None of that. Say, I'm sorry I have hurt you. And stop there. Don't add anything. Say, I'm sorry I've hurt you, and allow that person to hear you. And the second thing you need to do is you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to say, will you forgive me? I don't deserve it. I'm not offering anything in exchange. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing anything else to really earn this from you, but will you forgive me? I'm doing this face-to-face. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? 
The second thing is, is also very important, and we've got to grasp the truth is, truth is this, is that we're going to do our part. We're going to do what we have to do. We're going to do it now. We're not going to put it off. But ultimately, we have to allow God to do the rest. Do your part and trust God to do the rest. If you go and you try to offer your apology, let me tell you, you may get one of three things. First thing that may happen is you might get someone to say, man, I didn't even know. I didn't even, I was not offended by this. It's, it's, it's fine. It, it's over. I, I appreciate you doing that. But I, I, got, I had no idea what you're really talking about, but I appreciate you saying this. The second thing is, 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 is you know what? I, I, they'll say, I, I forgive you. I have forgiven you. It's already been done. And, and because of you doing this, like it has improved our relationship. The third thing is, is the rough one. The third possibility, the one that we're all afraid of, is that we'll get up there, we'll explain what's going on, we'll ask for forgiveness, we'll say we're sorry, and this person won't have anything to do with it. To them, the relationship's already over. They've cut you off. It's done. And that's going to hurt. But it's not our responsibility how they react. You may get that, that kind of end, but it's not your responsibility to control that. In the Bible, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says something that's pretty interesting. He says, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, because guess what? It may not be possible. It may not be possible. There may be a situation where forgiveness and reconciliation can't be exchanged. It's just not going to work. But it's your responsibility to do everything that you can. You hear the urgency in Jesus' voice. If you're going to go to the altar and worship and you realize there's a problem, there's a wrong, you need to correct, you leave and you go fix it now. You seek forgiveness. You make it right now. And the third thing overall here is that we don't own the outcomes. We can't own what people do with this. We aren't responsible for how it's received. We are responsible for our part to live at peace and to find the beauty of reconciliation. And that beauty comes in, in weird times and tragedy. There's a story that came out that, that maybe you've heard before. It's, it's a story from, from 2006. But we know we need reconciliation in our lives. We know that we live in a broken world. We most recently witnessed this in Newtown, Connecticut. As a young man disturbed to a level to kill his mother, to kill some 20 innocent children, to kill a handful of teachers and administrators just there doing their jobs. But there's another story from our recent history that illustrates this reconciliation. On October the 2nd, 2006, Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse, dismissed all but 10 young girls, and proceeded to shoot them before fatally shooting himself. Five of the girls died. Five survived. Six months after this tragic event, U.S. News and World Report returned to the scene of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, to find out how the Amish were coping. Reporting their findings in the article moving on, the reporters discovered that the tragedy brought together Amish and non-Amish neighbors, resulting in a deeper sense of community. They stood together, comforting and supporting one another. The Amish immediately reached out to the widow of the shooter, extending forgiveness. And forgiveness has been what has moved these Anabaptist descendants forward in these dark days. Donald Crabill is an expert in the Amish, on the Amish tradition. He teaches at Elizabethtown College near Nickel Mines. In an interview, he explained how forgiveness in the biblical sense is love letting go when wrong has been suffered. To a person, the Amish would argue that forgiveness is the central teaching of Jesus. They will take you to the Lord's Prayer. If you don't forgive, 
you won't be forgiven. Amish culture relies upon lessons learned from a 17th century book, Martyr's Mirror. This volume tells the stories of Christian martyrs, including the Dutch Anabaptists. One of the more popular stories tells of how a Christian prisoner was escaping, but stopped to save a guard from drowning. The guard was saved, but the prisoner was burnt at the stake. That account gives insight into the fabric of the Amish character. When asked if all Amish forgive, Reverend Christine Hillman, a Presbyterian minister in the area, said the Amish are like anyone else. Some take the forgiveness of Christ and pass it on to others, and some don't. They set an example that caused me, a Presbyterian minister, to examine my own life and ask, who haven't I forgiven? And maybe to take that a step forward for us, who do I need to reconcile with? Because nothing is more important than relationships. Romans 12.1 says, says it this way, in view of God's mercy, His mercy and forgiveness for each one of us that we don't deserve and didn't earn, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Well, what is Jesus saying here? What is behind these lines about forgiveness? Jesus is saying this. Basically, you've got one thing that matters and one, that one thing is relationship with God. And second to that is your relationship with people. It's all relationship. Nothing else lasts and nothing else matters. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important command? What did Jesus say? He said, the most important is to love God and love the Lord. And the second is like it, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. Why was Jesus so urgent in this teaching? Why was it that he made this a priority to communicate? Because he knows that the evil one is very clever and very deceitful. And he knows the evil one loves to destroy what is important to the heart of God. He loves to steal and kill and destroy what is most important to God. And what is most important to God? It's you and it's me. You and I are in relationships. And Jesus said that we have to get on this. We have to seek out reconciliation. In the middle of some of the most important teachings of his ministry... Jesus tells us to take bold, radical steps to repair our relationships. This teaching is controversial because it says that even the most important religious teachings, the most important religious traditions are second to this reconciliation. We are broken people capable of causing immense damage to others. We know this because we have been victims of this brokenness. But we are also offenders of others. Don't let another Christmas, another family get together don't go home for Christmas break. Don't leave the office for a few days of vacation. Don't miss another opportunity, another week, another day that goes by with strained, broken relationships. Make this a priority to seek out forgiveness, even if it means asking the hard question of, how have I hurt you? Don't put it off anymore, but have some urgency in this. Realize that you may not have another chance. Realize that this may be your last chance. And finally, when you do, when you do take these steps to find forgiveness, trust God in the process. Don't own the outcomes. You can't control what other people do with it, but you can control what you do and what you say. Jesus coming to earth was the light that broke into the dark world that we live in. His life and teaching are the perfect example of how things should be. The gift of Jesus is that we can not only forgive others, but we can heal those relationships that are broken 
by seeking the forgiveness of others. I want to close with a, with a quote from a pastor. He says, Why blame the dark for being dark? It is far more helpful to ask why the light isn't as bright as it could be. Let's pray. Father, we are broken people. We are incomplete. Father, we are, we are a people that have caused incredible damage and harm to those that we care about. And Father, I, I pray right now that uh, for those of us sitting in this room, that You would bring to mind those that we need to seek forgiveness, to seek that reconciliation. And that, God, that, that maybe first we need to seek that reconciliation with you. That maybe there are, there's someone in this room right now who hears this incredible teaching of Jesus but doesn't know Jesus. Someone who has been hurt, who has caused pain, but first needs to be reconciled to you, God. And, and Lord, we recognize that you embrace those who make those decisions. And as a way to kind of acknowledge this, to declare this with our lives, with every eye closed, I'm going to ask if, if you are in a place where you have never made a commitment to reconcile with God, if you've never taken that step to accept Jesus and His incredible gift of the gospel, with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you? And Father, as we go through this, this Christmas season, as we as we interact with family and friends and we feel old wounds and, and old pain, we, we ask that you would show us not that we are only victims, but that we are also offenders. And therefore, it is on us to seek forgiveness, to make it right, and eventually give you the outcomes of those conversations. Lord, we love you, and we need your light in our world and in our lives. Amen.